So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord of the tomb, and we do not know where they've taken him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together. And the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came, following him, and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had come first to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb, weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. When she had said this, she turned around. And saw Jesus standing there, and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned, Hebrew, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he has said these things to her. So, when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side, and the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprints of the nails and put my finger in the place of the nails and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here with your hand and put it in my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord, my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written 
so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, you may have life in His name. Well, of all the events recorded in the Bible, certainly in the New Testament, none carries more importance, none carries more significance than the death and the resurrection of a man, Jesus, of Nazareth. Since the Gospels were written, men have long debated the meaning of his teachings, they've debated and argued over his identity, and they have debated uh, the significance of his life lived on earth. But there can be no argument, there can be no debate about the meaning of the passage we just read here Easter morning. Because the events recorded here in John and in the Gospels written by the other authors give us only a stark choice. They leave us only with this compelling dichotomy. For on the one hand, you can look at the text here this morning and make a choice for yourself to believe that this is a fraud. You can look at the text and believe it is false and therefore conclude that Jesus himself was a fraud, that he was, in other words, just this ordinary man who lived this ordinary life until about the age of 30. And then, for some inexplicable reason, he developed literally a Messiah complex. And then, for the next two or three years, he marched around the Galilee and around Judea, making absurd claims about himself and making enemies as he went. And then, after his ignominious death, on a cross, his body was left rotting in the grave, just like everybody before him and since. And if that's true, then not only is his life of no significance, but his words are of no significance, his promises are worthless, and all of what we do here and now is a complete waste of time. As Paul himself said in 1 Corinthians 15:17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have gone to sleep in Christ, meaning have died in their faith, have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, then we of all men are most to be pitied. That's one choice you have in listening to the text this morning. Now, on the other hand, if John's account is true, if what he attests to be true actually happened, and if like the other Gospel writers, they are giving an accurate depiction, an accurate witness to the events of that day, then you're left with only one other conclusion. There's only one other thing to conclude. If he died, if Jesus died and entered a tomb, but then later, after three days, returned to life and walked the earth for many days, then this man is no mere man. He's done something no other man has ever done. He promised his disciples while he was still alive that one day when he died, he would raise himself back to life after three days. And here is a man, John, witness to exactly that occurrence. That this man, Jesus, promised what would happen after he died and then somehow after his physical body was dead, he kept his promise. By his promise, by his promise to be able to return to life after death, he's proven that he can conquer death itself, that he actually has power over not just life, but over his own death. And therefore, friends, we have to listen to his instructions concerning not only the life here and now, the teachings that he's so famous for, but you also have to take as truthful his statement about his power over eternal matters as well, over your death, your death, not just his own. Because we have no other option. 
There is no other option on the page before us. Buddha is still in the grave. You know, no one else can meet the test that we just established if you believe it's true in John's Gospel. No one else in life has ever been able to say, this is what I will do after I die. Buddha, as we said, is still in the grave. Muhammad is still in the grave. You can go visit it if you'd like. Confucius is still in the grave. So is every other wise man who has ever come and sought to explain things eternal. Who's ever said they have an answer for the age-old question of what happens after death. For all of their teaching, when death finally came to them, they could not conquer it. They were its captive. And we've never seen nor heard of them again. Do you trust someone to explain to you the way to eternal life, to a life after death, when they themselves couldn't even provide that way for themselves? Do they have an answer for you and I? So everything, friends, hinges on your view of the resurrection account. If it never happened, if the story is false, then nothing written in the Gospels is worthy of our attention this morning. But on the other hand, if it happened, as John described, as Luke and Matthew and Mark as well, then we are compelled to acknowledge and accept Jesus' claims concerning who he was and concerning what we must do if we are to join him in eternal life. He is the authority on the subject of life after death. So how reliable is this story? I mean, if it all does hinge on the veracity of these men's accounts, how reliable is the story we find written in the pages of the Bible? One of the most authenticated, one of the oldest and most accurate historical documents we have today. But yet, is the original authorship trustworthy? What proof, for example, might we have to give credibility to these eyewitness accounts? I want you to consider four factors. These were originally proposed by John Stott in his very famous book, Basic Christianity. If you don't have it, I encourage you to find a copy of it. Uh, It's well-worn in most homes. John Stott lists four factors that if you examine them carefully from the record of Scripture, they give reason, they give support to the testimony that is given in the Gospel record concerning the resurrection. First, he says, consider the accounts surrounding the absence of the body. The absence of the body is your first point. Now, we know from the four Gospel accounts that after three days... A woman close to him, women close to Jesus, and familiar with his burial location, returned to the tomb. Now, they returned early on a Sunday morning. That's why we celebrate Easter on Sunday. This is the Sunday that followed a two-day Sabbath period. That there was not only the normal Sabbath of Saturday, but there was a high Sabbath on the Friday prior as well, due to the Passover week and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So as a result, they were prohibited from leaving their home for two days. But then Sunday morning appears, and they are free to leave their home, and they rush back to the tomb. As they rush at daybreak, they bring, as we're told in the other Gospels' accounts, spices to further prepare the body. Likely the rush to put Jesus in the grave before dark on the day he died left him somewhat insufficiently prepared for burial. That whatever was done was done in haste, and the women knew that and were coming back to finish the job on Sunday morning. Now, when they arrive, we know from John's account, they find the tomb empty, they find the stone rolled away, the stone that had been placed there to hold the tomb closed. Later, as we know, they come back and tell the apostles that raises concern, and so Peter and John, we're told, come back to see this for themselves, to verify that this tomb is, in fact, empty. Now, before someone can claim to be resurrected, it's self-evident that their previously dead body 
can't remain in the grave. You can't find their dead body if, in fact, they've been resurrected. You have to understand the term resurrection does not mean the spirit returning to life. That's not what the word means. The word means the physical body returning to life. In other words, not just a ghost coming out of the grave. That's not resurrection. Resurrection is the body coming out of the grave. And that is the promise that Jesus has extended not just for himself, but to everyone who believes in him. In fact, to all men of any kind, believer or unbeliever, all will be resurrected. All will return to a physical body someday. The only question is, what will you do next? There have been theories proposed to explain why his body was not found in the grave according to these accounts. For example, perhaps the women just got lost. Perhaps they went to the wrong tomb. They went to the wrong place, found his body missing because they were in the wrong place in the first place. Now, that's unlikely for several reasons, given the account. First of all, what about the apostles and the others who no doubt would have taken the same trip to verify the empty tomb? Not just the ones we hear about in this account, but all the others that would have no doubt done much the same thing when the news spread. I mean, it's one thing for the women to get it wrong, or maybe even John and Peter, as unlikely as that is, but for how long would that have gone on before somebody realized, oh, we're in the wrong place? And then the body would have been discovered. Well, The second theory is perhaps Jesus wasn't really dead. The swoon theory is the way it's often called, that he was essentially incapacitated by the cross, passed out, thought to be dead, and then later in the tomb he resuscitated and walked out. Well, it's pure conjecture to suggest that, but more importantly, it contradicts everything we see in the Scripture and it defies human logic. I mean, I want you to consider what that theory requires. That theory requires that Jesus would be flogged nearly to death, beaten by soldiers, deprived of water, dragged to the cross, crucified, which is no small matter in itself, pierced in the side with a Roman sword such that blood and water come out, left then in a cold stone tomb in cold weather. We know it's cold because the night of his crucifixion, you see the uh, people huddled in the home of priest Ananias around fires trying to stay warm. This is still a cold time of year. So he's in a cold stone tomb without medical care, without food, without water, for three days in an unconscious state, near death, as the theory goes, from all these other activities. And then somehow he revives himself in the grave and has enough strength to roll a tomb stone aside and walk out unharmed. No reasonable person could accept that theory as plausible. Perhaps the disciples stole the body That became the most popular of the explanations for why his body's not in the grave when they go back. Perhaps he was stolen. You know, it's interesting, the Gospels have quite a bit to say on this point. The theory is so old, in fact, it actually predates his death. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, verse 62, On the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said that after three days I'm to rise again. Therefore... Give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He is risen from the dead. And that last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, Well, you have a guard. Go, make it as secure as you know how. They went and made the grave secure. Along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. So they took precautions. His very enemies took precautions to prevent just such a theft, and in doing so, they actually strengthened the gospel account concerning the resurrection. And it worked, in fact. 
you look at the testimony of the guard himself, and that's recorded in Scripture in Matthew's Gospel as well. The guard, after the resurrection, goes back to his, essentially his employers, the Pharisees, and look what he says. Chapter 28 of Matthew, verse 11. Now, while they were on their way, some of the, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened concerning Jesus' resurrection. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And the guards took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. So the false rumor that the body was stolen is actually countered, ironically, by the words and actions of the very men who were afraid of just such an outcome, as recorded in Scripture. Their own guard testified that the body was missing after the third day, and he didn't know why. And they said, well, then we need to come up with a good story, and here it is. So the reality of the body being missing and unaccounted for and without logical explanation apart from the resurrection gives support to the authenticity of the gospel claim. There is no other record of its day that suggests any credible alternative to the disappearance of Jesus' body. So we have to consider that factor. A second critical piece of evidence in support of the resurrection account is the undisturbed grave clothes. This is quite compelling. John, we know from this account, was one of the two apostles who ran to the tomb after the women and he was the first, or he was the second to walk in, Peter walking in beforehand. When John walks in, he gives the most detailed account of what he saw in that tomb, of all the Gospel writers. And he particularly focuses on the arrangement of the grave clothes. So they must have made an impact on him. When he walked in and saw their physical positioning, it must have had an immediate impact, and he wrote about it. Earlier in John's account, we hear about this wrapping process about how they wrapped the body in John 19.39. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation... Since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now consider what we just saw. In fact, you have to know a little bit about the burial customs of the day and about how they would have prepared his body to have a full understanding of why these grave clothes are important to the story and why they impacted John the way they did. We know from John's account that they carefully wrapped his body with linen. Now this is something of like what you see in the movies when you put a mummy wrap around somebody. It's got that sense to it, long linen bandages. But the way they would prepare a body to keep it from deteriorating too quickly was to take a powdered form of myrrh, a very uh, strong-smelling spice, and it's also a, a decadent. It takes moisture. It sucks moisture away from the body. And they would take the linen, and as they're wrapping the body, in between the folds, they're sprinkling this powder the whole time. And the aloes and the oils are there to help wet it down and keep it on the, on the linen. John's account says there is nearly a hundred pounds of this stuff involved in the embalming of Jesus. And we know from the fact that the women were coming back that it wasn't enough. They were going to do even more. All right? But at least there was a hundred pounds of spice. These bandages are going to be wrapped so tightly and then you know, kind of stuck together with the powder and the aloes and the weight of it all in such a way that the person who is wrapped this way in the custom of the Jews 
would have been completely immobilized and essentially in a straitjacket, his whole body. Now, there was an interesting aspect of the custom. You noticed in the text I read, John mentions they did it in accordance with the custom of the Jews. What he's referring to there is the way they wrapped. They wrapped in a style, not like what you see with pharaohs, but differently. They wrapped the body up to the neck, then they stopped and left the neck open. The neck was not covered in any way. And then the head was covered in such a way that it left the face open. So the face could be seen in the neck, but the head otherwise was totally wrapped and the body was totally wrapped. This was a Jewish style of wrapping. So a body wrapped in this way would have been totally immobilized, though you could see the face and neck, couldn't have moved an inch, which means that if, for one, on the one hand, if the body had resuscitated itself or if somebody had come along and he was still alive and resuscitated him, the only way to free him from that moment would have been to completely unravel all of the clothes around him. There's no other way to get his body out of there and leave the grave clothes behind. You can't slide him out. Now, if he had just been stolen and was dead, and yet you wanted to leave the grave clothes behind so as to pretend he had been resurrected, you still have the same problem. You still got to unwrap the body. But what John's account says is this, in John chapter 20, verse 6, which I've already read, And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Now, the Greek text here, gives you a different sense of what he's describing. And unfortunately, the English here has changed the thinking a little or changed the sense of it a little. Lying here means collapsed. The sense of it is the linen wrappings were around a body and then all of a sudden the body's gone and the weight of that hundred pounds of spice collapses the linen wrappings into a flat form, a lying there, in other words, in exactly the position that the body was. Even more convincing... John goes out of his way to say that the head bandages are lying nearby, but separate from the rest. The text I read uses this unfortunate translation, rolled up. It's not rolled up like you take a piece of paper and roll it up and wad it up. That's not the sense of it at all. The sense of rolled up is in the way it's formed around the head. Rolled. A bowl, in other words. There is this bowl wrapping sitting separate, and the word separate here suggests specifically adjacent to, but not touching which would have been consistent with the fact that the neck would have separated the head cloths from the rest of the body cloths. In other words, here's this bowl of a headdress sitting there, separated nicely from a flat, compressed body wrapping. Because at the moment of his resurrection, folks, his body was no longer there. The moment of our rapture involves an instantaneous changing of the body from its current state to a new glorified state. That is the form or that is the method by which Jesus himself was resurrected. He immediately moved from a state of deadness to a new alive state in a new body such that what was on his previous body simply collapsed. This is why I think that some have envisioned the day of the rapture to involve clothes being left behind in the place of where the body once sat. There's a joke I remember of some people who did this to their pastor one day as a a way of playing with him. He came to work one day and they had taken a couple of the vehicles and kind of parked them up on the curb like, and then left the door kind of open and put some shoes and clothes in the car. And, and then in the office, they had clothes sitting on chairs and shoes underneath. So he walked through this office thinking that he had missed the rapture. Boy, that must have been a bad day for the staff after that. But John's gospel, going back to the point, that's kind of fun. No, don't try that, by the way. So John's gospel does a remarkable job of reflecting accurately, the setting you would expect given 
the story of the resurrection. And if you had tried to fake that, it was nearly impossible given the fact that you would have had to find a way to wrap a body with 100 pounds of spice and then get the body out from under it. Not something anyone would have achieved with a guard standing outside the tomb the whole time. So the evidence of the body's disappearance is consistent with a miraculous transformation into new life. Now that brings us to the third factor. His appearances. In the Gospel record, there are ten separate accounts of Jesus appearing in a resurrected living body to other men and women and the apostles and crowds and even to a couple of oblivious pilgrims on a road to Emmaus. And each of these accounts is consistent with a Jesus who is real, not a, not a ghost, not a vapor, but tangible and very much alive, eating food with them and shaking their hands or touching them, allowing them to touch Him in ways that could not be faked if it were not a true living man. Now, what explanations would you propose for these reports to explain them away? Well, C.S. Lewis is famous once for writing that in terms of who Jesus was, he must either be a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. For those are the only three ways you can characterize someone who made the claims that he made. And to borrow from that, I would say that there are three explanations you can apply here for the appearances of Jesus after the resurrection. The men and the women who said they saw him were either liars, or they were lunatics, or they were telling the truth about a resurrected Jesus. Well, start with the first. Could all the apostles and all these witnesses be lying about seeing Jesus? Could they have all decided in a sort of mass conspiracy to make up a story about his resurrection and tell everyone they've seen him when they really had not? Well, first, I want you to consider the obvious details that you would naturally expect a deliberate liar to include in their accounts and yet are absent from the eyewitness accounts. For example, the four gospel accounts are considerably different concerning how he appeared and who he appeared and even things that he said. Now, there are ways we can reconcile them, but the point is, if you set out to have a conspiracy, don't you get your story straight? Isn't it an easier, more effective, plausible conspiracy if you're all telling the same story than if you have vastly different ones in some cases? It seems to run against their own good purpose if they're trying to lie that they would do it in the way they did it. And then the accounts lack descriptions of things you would expect to see in a lie. For example, the resurrection moment itself. Wouldn't the most compelling part of the lie be an eyewitness account of him resurrecting? Of his body changing? Of the miraculous moment itself? Wouldn't that be the natural thing you'd go to first if you were making up the story? And yet none of them include that detail because no one was there to see it as God planned it. Then the third interesting fact, the women are your first witnesses. Now, please don't be offended when I say this, but from a Jewish point of view, from an ancient Eastern point of view, and frankly, even in today's culture sometimes, unfortunately, a woman's testimony is not given the same weight that a man's would. Certainly in that day it wasn't. So if I needed a credible witness, if I was trying to make my lie stick, I don't begin with a woman as my first and main witness. That's just the reality of the culture in that day. It seemed counter to their purpose. And then finally, the apostles themselves. As the chief conspirators in this huge lie, they themselves behaved in ways that was completely inconsistent with a conspiracy. 
I mean, the 11 men and the many others who personally saw him and attested to the belief of the resurrection, most if not all of them suffered tremendous persecution for their belief. Now, folks, men will often perpetrate a fraud in order to gain something from it for personal gain in some form, right? Even if that gain is simply notoriety. But most of them will not, in fact, I would argue none, would hold to a story that they know to be false because they made it up. And yet, they have no hope of personal gain from carrying this story forward. And, on the other hand, they face almost certain execution over it. Explain to me what motivation they would have to hold to this story, all of them, to a one, and take it to the grave. You can accuse the witnesses of being liars, but it just doesn't make any sense. What about lunatics? They're they're just crazy. They were seeing things. I mean, they weren't trying to tell a lie. They just had the story wrong because they saw something that wasn't really there. Well, first, remember, this wasn't their preferred outcome. One of the uh, psychological principles that applies to the study of hallucinations or of visions is that almost always, if not always, people who have these sorts of visions are having visions consistent with their desires or their wishes. In other words, they're seeing what they want. For example, someone who is a loved one away in the war a husband or a daughter or a son who's fighting, sometimes you think you hear their voice. Sometimes you think you see them drive the car that they always drive or you, you, you feel like you saw their shadow around the corner. There's a longing for them that leads you to see things that aren't really there. Or the parent who has lost a child, tragically in some way, and then for the next several years, if not for the rest of their life, they think they hear the child's laugh or they think they hear the child's cry somewhere. Psychologically, it's rare, to say the least, for someone to see something that is actually counter to their expectations, not what they expected. And these witnesses, folks, they were not expecting the resurrection. John himself said that. They didn't understand yet that all of what Jesus had promised was going to come true in this particular way. Look, the women, when they went to the tomb, they were carrying spices. They expected to find a body. To not see it was not a hallucination. The disciples, they were actually doubters. Thomas being the most famous of the group, right? They weren't prepared to believe this. They were actually cynics. They were actually skeptical. And they asked for proof. Thomas, again, asked for proof. So these visions, if they were visions, would be some of the most remarkable ones ever seen in the study of human psychology because for the first time we can tell, people were actually having mass hallucinations over things they never expected nor wanted. Secondly, these visions, if they were visions, were consistent across many different people, different times, different places, in many different situations, over weeks. Some of these people, for example, were close friends of Jesus. They knew him well. But others were distraught. They were, some were doubting, we've already said. Some were oblivious, the men on the road to Emmaus being the perfect example. The last person they expected to see was this guy, Jesus, they just heard got killed. On what basis would they have imagined him standing there? Even Paul, even Paul himself experiences later an account of seeing Jesus on the road to Damascus years after the resurrection. This man, least of any, would have been desiring to see this person that he was so busy trying to persecute in the form of the followers. These sightings, folks, simply don't fit the pattern of crazy people hallucinating a vision of a risen Jesus. You may make that claim in contrast to the claims of Scripture, But you're on more tenuous ground than Scripture is in that case, logically speaking. Well, fourth, there's one final proof of Jesus' resurrection being valid and being believable. 
And this is probably the most powerful of the three. And that is the changed lives of those who followed him in the later years, and of the apostles particularly. I mean, if the crucifixion and the death of their master and of their teacher had left the apostles scared and sorrowful and disillusioned, well, then their belief in the resurrection left them hopeful and determined and transformed in the years that followed. Each of them, we know, embarked on a life of difficulty, of persecution, of personal jeopardy, all in the name of this risen Lord who was their reason for this new lifestyle. Peter, for example, we know in the time leading up to the crucifixion, he denies Christ. He's so afraid of the situation and afraid of being caught up in it. And then later, after the death, he returns to his fishing. So apparently the death and the life of Jesus did not change Peter's outlook on his own life, at least not in what we see in the record. But then, as he's in the boat, Jesus appears to him for the second time and says, leave your nets and follow me. And this time... The man leaves so that he could then found a church in Jerusalem, or at least lead the persecuted church in Jerusalem, going to the cross himself, ultimately, over what he believed about this risen Lord. So, folks, if you want proof that there was a risen Christ, Peter's life gives wonderful example of the fact that until he saw a risen Lord, his heart didn't fully commit to the mission God had given him. Well, then there's James. James is well known because he's one of Jesus' earthly brothers. He shared... Mary as his mother, and he had Joseph as his father, unlike Jesus. Now we're told in John's Gospel, John chapter 7, verse 5, that none of Jesus' brothers, his earthly brothers, believed in his testimony as Messiah while he still walked the earth, James being one of them. And then we see the famous letter James wrote where he doesn't even bother to describe himself as the brother of Jesus as much as he wants to prefer to describe himself as the slave, a bondservant of this man who was once his earthly brother. After the resurrection, James becomes not only a believer in Jesus' claims, but he becomes a fellow leader with Peter in the church in Jerusalem. Clearly, the resurrection of Jesus changed James' mind concerning the identity of his brother. And then finally, there's Paul. There's Paul, chief persecutor of the church in the early days. A man, we're told, breathing fire against believers, breathing accusations against them. And then a risen Lord appears to him on that road and he becomes the greatest evangelist in the history of the church. How do you explain their lives? How do you explain what happened to those three men among many others in their day? Well, for that matter, how do you explain the thousands of lives that were changed at Pentecost? How do you explain the millions of lives that have been changed in all the centuries that have come since? Does a lie change a man's heart that way? Do do crazy people grow and persevere and love in the way that Jesus' followers truly do? The only explanation that holds water in what we've witnessed and what is recorded in Scripture is a risen, resurrected Jesus. And by that resurrection, these people stood convinced in his claims concerning himself. Folks, the proof is really overwhelming. The only reason we don't go to it automatically is because it's not reported on CNN, I guess. It didn't come to us in an email, because everyone believes those things, I'm told. Jesus died, he remained in the tomb for three days, and then on the first Easter Sunday, his body left that grave never to die again. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.14, Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. What does it say to our hearts here now, 2,000 years after this man 
return to life and walk the earth. That he was able to keep his promise. What does that mean to you and I today? For he said before he died that after I die, I will come back to life. Think about what that requires. How do you actually do that? When all that you can do in your normal life is achieved through the power of a physical living body, when that physical living body has been put in the grave, what is it you can do? The only one who has any power at that point is the creator of that body. So when he has the power of life over death in his own body, he gives self-evident proof that he is the creator, that he has the power of God, nay, that he is God as he claimed to be. Now, if he is God, if this man who walked 2,000 years ago and was resurrected on the day we mark today was in fact your creator and my creator, then all of a sudden we have to attach immense importance to every word he spoke. Every one of them now becomes more important than any other piece of advice we could ever hope to find anywhere else. You know, this isn't the end of the story. Easter isn't just about recognizing that Jesus rose from the dead. It's also about recognizing what he promised to those who believed in his name and followed after him. He promised that we too will be resurrected. As I said earlier this morning, everyone is resurrected. That's not a surprise. Even those who are unbelievers will one day be resurrected so as to be judged for their sin. But that's not where we have to leave it for ourselves. We understand that by believing in what he did, believing in the fact that as he died, he was being put in our place, put in the place of the sinner, taking the penalty that every sinner is due, that we now understand that the life he lives now in God is a life we can share, an eternal life, being resurrected into a body that does not die again, in other words, if we're willing to place our trust in his work. Romans 8, 11. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. See, the key is that the Spirit of God brought the life back to the body of Christ and will do the same for us if, as Paul says, He dwells in you. 